Hey everybody, it's Rob here. Just want to let you know before you listen to this episode of Waypoints uh, that it carries a caution warning for details of drug and alcohol abuse, domestic violence, homicide, and death. Most of that's tied to the first topic of the show, uh, Dark Side of the Ring. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Oh, hello. It's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gather around the table this Thursday, we've got Patrick Klepek. Hello. Austin Walker. Hey. Natalie Watson. Hi, hi. And we've got our producer, Kato, working the boards. Uh, so this week we actually had a couple people reach out to me about this even before you brought it up, Austin, that, uh, you know, people like it when we talk about sports and a few people started (laughs) like, you know, messaging me, what you guys should really talk about is this new wrestling documentary, dark side of the ring, which nobody told me was a vice property, by the way. I was (laughs) just like, Oh cool. New wrestling documentary. Not only a Vice Property, a Vice Property co-created and produced by Evan Husney, who worked with us on multiple docs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what shot our uh, Super Hypercube doc mm-hmm. when I first got here, um, and then also was the shooter, the producer on the Magic the Gathering episode of Waypoint Presents. And you were uh, able to do a small interview with him, yeah, last which went week. up in the feed. It was, it, you know, small by Waypoint standards, only an hour. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's it's a super interesting show. It is um, uh, a show that's been airing on Viceland for the last few weeks now. I believe it's three episodes in, a fourth episode. May have gone up by the time you hear this, actually, now that I think about it. Um, And Evan and the other uh, creative team, or the rest of the creative team, um, has done something that I think is pretty fascinating, which is... (sighs) It is a look, you know, I guess on on its face, it is a look at tragedy and crime and death inside of the world of pro wrestling. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also a sort of tangential or like um, sideways entry into the broader world of wrestling fandom in which by using these stories, some of which are well known, some of which are are kind of new to me – the team is able to introduce you to specifically this period of 70s, 80s, and 90s wrestling. This era that I think is so distinct from the contemporary era, but also is important to understand if you're thinking about what some of the conversations we had just a couple weeks ago around something like Kofi Kingston winning at WrestleMania Mm -hmm. only really makes sense in the fullest uh, way if you know some of this history, if you understand the, the strange, you know, carnival nature of what wrestling used to be, if you can really look at some of the characters who were played as hyper stereotypical racist characters. If you can like understand the ways in which 
there is a blurring between the real and the fictional or the or there's a blurring between the real and the fictional and the thing that is blurring them the the paint thinner that blurs the image is physicality right like um and i think so that we watched two episodes or i said we should watch two episodes the killing of bruiser brody uh and the montreal screw job mm-hmm. um i also watched uh, an episode about Macho Man Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth, his uh, ex-wife, um, uh, and also a, a performer in her own right, an important performer in the history of wrestling in her own right. Um, and I can talk a little bit about a little bit about that at towards the end of the segment. But I just kind of wanted to get your opinions I, again, Patrick. I know you grew up in the era of the Stone Cold Steve Austin's and and all of that. So like I'm sure you have some, and we you talked about that a little bit. But Robin Natalie, I don't have any clue what you know about wrestling that isn't just stuff we've talked about on this podcast. So I'm curious, like going into this, what was your expectation and what did you think of it? So I think I probably figured it would dig into more the various like scandals and culture in the backdrop of the WWE specifically, right? Uh, You know, things like union busting, um, you know, abuse of drugs and steroids, uh, you know, covering up of injuries. Like I was figuring just some, like stuff about sort of the day to day, just the physical toll and sort of the uh, unfair treatment facing a lot of wrestlers in the history of the WWE. And I think we start to get into that a little bit with the second episode uh, that you had us watch where we where were talking about the Montreal screw job, which is very much about that nineties era. Uh, and, uh, uh, begins to cover some of the things that I knew about wrestling just from being a kid at the time and like hearing people who are into wrestling talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think what really struck me here is also I was completely oblivious to this like almost pre WWE takeover of everything in the world of wrestling. Yeah. This, this, uh, not quite fair to call it the Wild West days of wrestling, but like the Bruiser Brody episode fucked me up. Yeah, uh, in part because it's a it, it's a brutal story. Uh, it's it's a, it's a deeply tragic and upsetting one. Uh, but also, I didn't really know anything about this period where there were these like wrestling territories yeah. and that really meant something at the time where like wrestlers really were traveling performers going from promotion to promotion, bringing their act. And the entire thing was sort of ad hoc and thrown together uh, territory by territory. And that basically what wrestling was changed dramatically between territories, right? Yeah. The, the, like the, the show we tend to see now is actually really sanitized and restrained compared to some of the shit that was basically par for the course in territories in the seventies and early eighties. And that, that was the part that really was eye opening for me. Like I had no idea that uh, there was a stage of wrestling where it really was this variable. And that there was this amount of like, seedy shit happening uh in in the corners i always thought that um that version of wrestling the sort of like hyper violent like where you're actually seeing you know people be injured and and like blood is on the mat and stuff like that i always thought that was a subsection of wrestling in the sense that i'd heard about like hard like hardcore some sort of like hardcore wrestling where like people were actually getting fucked up and so wrestling to me was always like about you know 
maneuvering each other in a way that minimizes injury and uh, still gives the illusion of like, you know, implied violence, but is not actually, you know, hurting anyone. Right. Or is not hurting anyone in like. In the way that it's showing like it's hurting. Right, 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 exactly. And so seeing, you know, the first episode and even the, the, we watched the first and third episode, um, but seeing the first episode. Also, I should say really quick, I think the order we watched is not the order that it was released in. So, gotcha. so what we watched again were the killing of Bruiser Brody and the Montreal screw job. Gotcha. I think that they led with the Macho Man Miss Elizabeth one because oh, gotcha. they're big. That makes movie. sense. Yeah, a hundred percent. That makes a lot of sense. Right? Totally, totally. But <laughs> but it was the killing of Bruiser Brody that got the rock to co-sign it on Twitter and like boost it a lot. Mm-hmm. Because I think that was like one of those things that's like that's an in- that's the other half of this, is it's a lot of it's a lot of storytelling from people who've had these stories for a long fucking time yeah. in their heads yeah. and have not been able to open up or have felt and and in some cases still won't open up about it. Yeah. They still don't want to tell the whole truth because there's the code, right? Yeah. Anyway, back to your point. Um and so yeah, so so seeing uh the bruise uh, the the death of Bruiser Brody um episode was just completely like earth shattering for me and to to think that that kind of violence was the norm and to see even like the stage presence of that character yeah. and how like undeniably terrifying he would be when he walked into the crowds and the crowds God. would scatter <laughs> and seeing how the crowds would like throw shit at him and then you you know, quickly cut to him at home with his wife and his kid. And it's just like, I understand that it's an act and everything like that. And this is a show, but it was so hard for me to sort of marry those two images in my head in the same person. It's like, it's such a feat of uh, performance to be able to um, assume that character and to... yeah, but that I think- stuff was so moving to me is like seeing him go between those modes and something super interesting. And then Rob, I will come right to you is I watched I actually watched. No, I'm thinking about it, I watched four of these episodes because we mm-hmm. got early access because we're at Vice. We're allowed to get that. God damn it. Finally, <laughs> I don't get screeners, but I'm going to get screeners for these wrestling uh, docs. God damn it. <laughs> um, there was a, a future episode that may have come out this week or might come out next week uh, about a, a Houston based wrestler named Gorgeous Gino Hernandez. They made a huge point with him that was like, he lived his character. Mm. He was this like shitty heel, playboy, like rich What's kid. What's a heel? A uh, heel is a bad guy. Okay. Um, is, is like the, is the, is the villain. Basically. Yeah, gotcha. A baby, a face is the good guy, a baby face. Okay. Um, and so he like lived that. Whereas with Bruiser Brody, you were getting these great interviews of him. The, the, that moment like, when he's like, you're not recording this, right? And right. And he's like just yeah. talking about who, like, He's like talking about who he is and his like his personal his name and like his family and stuff like the that. Football and football. That's what he's like. I used to play. He's he like I was Washington. an all American. Yeah, totally. He's like you're not going to use any of this, obviously. Yeah. Um, Rob, what were you going to add here? That okay. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, even no, the interviewer <laughs> is like. It says something. I don't think I you said anything earnest. Yes. Like just Which is like, like trying not to true. Put the, because it's right. the most earnest thing he could have said. He could see all the way through it. And yeah, it's it's a really I, I want I wish we'd had more of that mm-hmm. because he's so he's so compelling as just like a dad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um to your 
kind of points around like the violence in the ring. I think one of the things that's really interesting, and this goes back to what Rob was saying, is like in this era, the territory era, those rules are not only different because of different promoters having different ideas about what like they want their product to be. And we get a little bit of that also in in the stuff with Bret Hart, like the school of Can of, you yeah, explain that? Maybe not right now, sure. but explain what it means to have products and territories <laughs> yeah. and like promotions and um, things like that. Because the whole like structure of the industry was like I'm completely new to it and don't really understand it. So through the like through the early to mid early to late 20th century, mm-hmm. America, North America was carved up between a bunch of different promotions in the same way that a carnival I mean literally it emerges from carnival history mm-hmm. right the there would be a promote or like music right that's the other the other place you can look to a little bit is like having something like a music promoter or a or a, a, a boxing promoter who is like oh yeah I work I bring fights to Atlantic City. I'm a promoter in Atlantic City. I know people who can rent spaces to me. I know I have relationships with the, with the unions for production. Mm-hmm. I have relationships with uh, you know food and beverage groups to bring in food and beverage. Mm-hmm. I'm a promoter. I make a show happen. Mm-hmm. And the territories were kind of – you carved up North America – and there will be major promotions in major areas. And there will also be minor promotions sometimes overlapping in those same areas, mm-hmm. right? So like the South the south and the Southeast had a bunch of different promotions. But eventually they were still like this is, this is so-and-so's biggest territory or gotcha. whatever, right? And you would go between different cities or some promotions would just be in one place. Like for me coming up in South Jersey, uh, Philly was like – it was the very end of the territory era, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where you still had like in the South some like Jim Crockett stuff and stuff like that. But, but eventually Philly became known as like that's where ECW was extreme uh championship wrestling which was like the the hardest of hardcore at the time uh very like over the top hyper violent mm-hmm. kind of really leaning into that Bruiser Brody pass into some of the the more uh, hardcore Japanese wrestling styles mm-hmm. isn't that the that shit that over. you would find like at like the blockbuster oh a hundred percent because it wouldn't be on TV right you'd have to get the VHS tapes which are compilations of because I distinctly remember watching some of that stuff I don't know that my parents actually let, let us rent it, but I remember distinctly being Holding. into WCW and WE and then like – or WWF at the time yeah. and and like being like, yo, this dude's just fucking hitting this guy with a two-by-four mm-hmm. like some of my wrestlers doing in WCW, WWF. But this guy, it seems like he's actually bleeding. Yeah. And my parents would put it back and, hey, just go get Chrono Trigger again. But I remember that <laughs> was sort of how it got disseminated to – um to like kids like yes. that was our our age was like not through there was no YouTube there was no um there was nothing local for me to find in the northwest suburbs of Chicago my access to that was through like grainy VHS mm-hmm. tapes that were either you found at the local family video which is the place we always got our stuff or your friend made a copy of it cuz they're older the the way we ended up seeing it was the older brother of a friend who had access to that shit and then he would let us watch it when we were supposed to be watching something else in someone's room. Yeah, so ECW is super fascinating. Yes, there's lots of like that copied videotape thing was exactly it. And also that's true for the old promotions also. The old territories were very similar to this because like if you had – if you were you know in the in the 80s, you wanted to see all of Ric Flair's matches, they didn't show – for you in you know in Wisconsin probably like maybe you 
you would get a special event where he was in town or if there was a, a cross promotion thing. But like there wasn't the centralization yet. Well, ECW was fascinating because when it blew up, it blew up in this perfect moment where um, the tape trading was beginning to be huge. The fandom was growing and it was becoming the sort of meta fandom in the sense that we have where you're not just a fan of Ric Flair. You're a fan and you're not just a fan of Jim Crockett promotions. You're not just a fan of the WCW. You're a fan of wrestling and you understand mm. wrestling as an industry. Mm. You're not just a fan of Chrono Trigger. You're a fan of JRPGs and maybe a yep. step beyond that, you're a fan of Square and maybe a step beyond that, you have a favorite game director. You know, um, and that is what was starting to happen. You can start to talk to your friends about how these products are different. So that's what product means, right? Like product is uh, the same way, honestly, the same way like we talk about product that yeah. like we don't do that that often because we're not terrible. The way we talk <laughs> about content or about franchises yeah. or the stuff that, ha that is said in this building, right? Yeah. Um, um, so for instance, you look at something like ECW, the, like, sorry, the thing I wanted to hit on, not just tape trading, but also late night TV. Mm. Um, ECW did air on TV. It aired on like the MSG network in New York, Madison Square Garden network. The what? Yeah. The, oh, the, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Uh huh. Uh, it aired on like which is local... what? Wait, but is that network just like recycled content that just like was like they just had a camera at the Madison Square Garden? It, it was. Like... <laughs> it was just like a hyper regional network. Um, or it is, I think it's still, I think it's still on. I don't have cable anymore. I don't have TV anymore. Uh, is but it just a local cable channel? Like yes. local cable, like it's, it's not cable oh, access. Okay. It's right. not cable access. It's a sports it's channel. It's like Chicago sports now. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it is oh, like. Oh, okay. Yes. All right. I got but it, it. also so, aired on like some other local, like. <laughs> it sounded just like a janitor had a camera <laughs> going no. to America's Square Garden. It was just like. <laughs> just wow. bootleg NBA games. <laughs> it, <it's>, okay. <laughs> I shot this one. <laughs> it similarly aired on uh, like a, a local Philly sports channel. And those things aired at like 1 a.m. And the FCC just wasn't watching. That is literally yeah. how they got that stuff out. It was not because they got allowances to show blood on live TV. It's because no one paid attention. And then people would record those to VHS players and then trade those tapes and be like, you have to see how New Jack jumped off the third story balcony into five tables that were on fire or whatever. I remember New Jack. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. That's you remember one his of the, forehead. The names that I remember from that era. So – I think one of the things that also really starts to come home in the Bruiser Brody documentary is that this whole territory system, uh, it mattered a lot what territory you were in. Like like the the yes. ethical the ethical foundation of the leadership of each territory varied wildly. Uh, you know, there were a lot of like there were a lot of territories, like a lot of a lot of like beloved wrestling promoters ended up in the WE Hall of Fame, in part because Oftentimes it was to sort of commemorate Vince screwing them out of their territory at some point, but also to sort of, hey, these were people that wrestlers respected. They knew these were promoters who would like give you a fair deal, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't screw with you too much uh, on a booking. And those are people you, you, you tend to like, but also there were like shadier promotions, uh, and there were promotions that offered maybe a more extreme product. And I think the Bruiser Brody thing, like I just didn't know this stuff existed where there's this growing sense of even before you know this entire thing is going to culminate in an out and out murder uh as this as this character is this extremely method wrestler in a lot of ways right like his wife describes the moment where he slips back into character and basically it's the moment he leaves the private sphere once he's out in public uh he is bruiser brody this this unhinged uh you know biker looking badass uh always always ready for a you know fight to the death practically 
And, you know, he's an internationally respected and renowned wrestler, but then everything starts to like have the, you start getting these really bad vibes that they start laying out the context for this trip to Puerto Rico, which is a different territory under different management. And Brody is trying to buy in. This is the other thing that's, that's sort of yeah. laid out here is that yeah. star wrestlers all like, Again, there's no retirement plan for these guys. Yep. It's what like so. What are you going to do to get an ownership stake? How do you take care of yourself? And if you're big enough, apparently, like Brody's idea was, I'm going to buy into this small but like really popular territory. I'm going to get an ownership stake and I'm going to start running it the way I want. But that requires doing business with people who you don't know real well, who already have a base of power in the territory. That like he's he's you know, a foreigner in this territory. Like it's, this is not his people. It's not his scene. He's a stranger to a lot of people he's intending to do business with. And the ones he does know, he has this really complicated past with, and because of the, the shit that has happened in the ring, the thing that does not seem for debate here at all is that Brody's fights. If he did not like you personally, were effectively real. It was a show, but he was also, genuinely beating the ever-living shit out of people that he was in the ring with. And one of those people is somebody who's in the management, in a management role in this, uh, in this territory in Puerto Rico. And like, he just demolished this dude in the ring in the past. It's not just that he demolished him. It's that part of why he demolished him was, and this is the blurring. This is the stuff that gets so tough. And this comes up in the Bret Hart episode also, Mm -hmm. right? Which is like these, People care deeply about their characters and their identities, and they profit off of it very literally. Bruiser Brody, you know, the says, I can't lose a match because then I'm not this character who is this monstrous, or I can't lose a match to this like upstart from from this small territory who's being pushed, who's getting support from that small territory. I'm not gonna lose to let this kid win. I need to maintain the character that I am. That's how I get gigs everywhere. Um, and on top of that, fights a very what we call a very stiff style of wrestling. Um, there's you know there's a huge range of like how much physic, how hard those slaps are. Mm-hmm. How it's safe in the sense that uh, it's it's safe in the sense that you are not putting you're not holding a hold that would genuinely break someone's arm for instance you're not genuinely throwing someone where you're going to give them brain damage immediately in the way that you absolutely could if you wanted to like there still has to be that degree of trust but Mm -hmm. there's lots of what you would think of as superficial damage there's lots of scarring and lots of like blood and lots of skin like just skin deep wounds and the hits are real and the bruises are real and he will not back away from that style of of performance and it's like it's so stressful because you can see the trains running towards each other you can see that it it should not have ended in a killing certainly no matter fucking what but like you could immediately tell, oh, he's going to invest money in this thing and it's not going to go the way he wants. What, what it feels like is a mob movie, right? Oh, it's yeah. like you're going out of your territory and these people you're doing business with are not part of your family. Yeah. Like you do not know these people. You do not have the relationship that you think you have because it's not just about money. It's about history. It's about mutual respect. It doesn't exist in this case. And so like when I, when I think it's um, who merges is kind of the star of this episode, Tony Atlas. Yeah. I, I think he, he starts talking about how like 
Brody was starting to, I don't know, a little bit of hubris where he's saying like, you know, you're going to see some changes around here uh, in the, in the next couple of years. And like, so he's not just coming in to take an ownership stake. He's coming in to like clean house. And one of the people he's going to clean out is this guy. He beat the shit out of, uh, Jose Gonzalez. Yeah. And this guy is, I guess the book, the, the booking agent for this territory. And he knows he's got a target on his back. Like Brody's going to come in, doesn't like him, Already, like, like inflicts a pretty brutal physical injury on him in a previous match. And now, to top it off, Brody's going to basically fire him from an executive position. And here comes Brody just to do, like, a show in this territory that he plans to make his. And, like, there's no sense. And why would there be? Like, ultimately, this is an entertainment industry. But, like, it's... There's more danger here than he's than he's giving it credit for, and he like he thinks it's gonna be a straightforward transaction, and he's he really has no idea uh, the degree to which he's entering hostile territory and doing business with people who don't have like it is not just business for them. I'm curious to the degree to which there's like a lot I want to unpack in terms of the presentation of this show, and the thing that you've hit on here is that like it does feel like a mob movie. Um, the the one that uh, again the one that's coming up um, uh, about about uh, uh, gorgeous uh, what's his name was Gino is that right gorgeous I think it was Gino um, also has that vibe because he's like tied up in the seventies disco mob scene literally in Houston and I'm still trying to work out how I feel about the aestheticization of this sort of tragedy. Um, I think I'm, I think it is, so, so I guess to talk about that a little bit for people who haven't watched the show, this is a show that is like, has this pounding dark synthwave score, like you're watching Drive or something. Um, the, I'd say the defining feature of it as visual storytelling goes are these reenactments. Um, the, the show is, or the docu, the docu-series is shot um, not only by, by Evan, but also by another uh, director, this guy who directed Hobo with a shotgun, and I've already forgotten his name. I feel bad. Uh, Jason, oh, Jason Eisner. That guy? Yeah, dude. Yeah, that's the that is like the weird connect here. The Rutger Hauer. Wow. All right. Uh-huh. You said that, and I had briefly blacked out, and I was like, "Why? <laughs> Why okay, am I thinking a, of that's a horror pull?" Yeah, right. So he shoots this, and I think there's wow, that this makes a lot more sense, honestly, because his mm-hmm. movies. His movies, his like Hobo with the Shotgun is a feature film that he did a short film version of that is all pulling from like 60s, 70s, like garbage horror aesthetic. And uh, this is stuff is actually more cleaned up than that. But you see the through line aesthetically from that to there. Totally. The lighting and the like the slow zooms, the kind of like I mean, the big difference is something like Hobo with the Shotgun wants you to see character faces and wants you to see like yeah. people. This this is yeah, this has Vaseline over the the camera yeah, lens. Yeah, this is very uh, much vast like majority of the time. Yeah, like shot or shot like dirty from the back so that you can't quite make out yeah. the details. Everything in kind of a black box theater with some like really interesting lighting. It's funny because like we've worked with Evan before and this is how Evan this is one of Evan's favorite modes of shooting too. Uh it's like very much just like in his house style. Um but it's so weird to be like, and this is a person who gets stabbed to death. And like, here's the camera. And it's so effective. I think it's deeply effective at creating tension for something that you know is coming. Um, And I think it works for me in these episodes, partially because I think that the the tragedy that you see feels like the sort of rare, you know, um, 
exceptional, not in the positive sense, um, sort of sort of outcome where it's like this is this is the sort of tragedy that I want to learn more about because it feels very public and weird and like the aestheticization of it, the way it's shot, the style is the styling of it is evoking the fear that everyone there was going through and it brings me all the way in. Right. It feels like things got out of hand. Yeah. And totally. I think if we didn't have such compelling interviews from yes. like Tony Atlas and Dutch and um, Ab- Abdullah. Abdullah the Butcher. Abdullah which, the Butcher. Uh, AKA Abby. Who all, all, also running a barbecue shop out of a van appears. Oh, yeah, dude. I also don't know if I trust Ab- Abdullah. I don't trust Abby. That motherfucker for knows shit. some nah. shit. A hundred percent. He knows some shit. Oh, a hundred percent. But they, but like they, they, the, the, like the clever framing is like, because I think the, 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 the series is acknowledging that. Like, yes. even though it's not overtly, yes. like, it is. It is, you know, in, especially in the framing towards the latter half of the episode is is showcasing there's a specific moment where like, an, you know, someone else calls him out on his bullshit and like, um, but then you get that last stinger. Yeah. Right. Like as the credits play where he's like more or less tearing up, like looking nostalgically back on, on, on footage in which it just gives you such insight into like the 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 culture of that era i don't know how how that like feeds in relative to to now but it was just such a you there are so many like it's not just it's not as simple as calling him a liar no right no it the culture of like that brotherhood that those people had is so complicated and probably this one story is a tip of an iceberg of a million stories that'll never get told because they're not nearly as dramatic but all filter from the same sort of secrecy brotherhood culture that defined like where these people came from and defined like their whole careers. Yeah. So I I think just regarding the aestheticization, um, I think it mostly worked for me. I think on the other hand, the interviews were so strong and vivid. I'm not sure you needed it. Mm. So like, I think it's, it's almost moment by moment. Like, it is one thing to hear Tony Atlas talk about walking into that locker room where the killing eventually happens. Yeah. And he sees these three guys just sitting there in a huddle, not talking. And they're just kind of waiting. Yeah. And they're just, and it's one thing to hear that, but like seeing it staged and you realize like what a strange thing it is to just yeah. see three men, God. three, three like physically imposing men, like sitting together in a group, completely still, not playing completely cards, silent. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And they're waiting for you. I have and such like, a good physical, uh, good spatial sense of that whole locker room, yeah. which is incredible because there's not a locker room. They don't, there's no walls, but I have it in my head. Yeah. But on the other hand, there were moments where I just wanted to, fuck it, just let the tape run and just let like Tony Atlas tell his story. Like there's this moment and they cut away from it and they clearly pick it up on a different sh- day, shooting day. But there's this point where he's in the blue shirt and he's mm-hmm. like, man, I got to tell the story. I've been carrying the story around me for for you know 30 years like i just got to get it out and it seems like i don't know like did they catch this while they were setting up to shoot a different segment (laughs) uh but he he just really wants to get into this and then we get that story clearly what looks like on a different day he's wearing a different shirt uh it's maybe a more practiced delivery but it was a moment where i did feel the hand of like just editing and like selection about what we're going to talk about and there was like there were a few moments in this where like 
there were times the production was really, really effective. And then there were also times the production field heavier than the like raw material they had necessarily needed, right? Like you could have just shot Tony Atlas's and Dutch's interviews and just like basically run the tapes and lightly edited them. And I think you still end up with a really compelling story. You know, you probably do half as half as much. Yeah. That's easy for me to say. I haven't seen the the raw footage. Uh, but there, there were just a couple beats where it was like, man, like I actually don't need it to be this dressed up. Like you can just let this person talk yeah. and believe me, I am bought in. I, so I think part of it too, is two things. One is practical, which is, I think some of these stories don't have as much archival. The Gino Hernandez story is mm-hmm. not from a well televised, you know, uh, territory. Um, and didn't, they were just, he died very young. And so in his case, it was a situation where it was like, we need to – and also a lot of his story takes place in nightclubs. A lot of his story takes place on roadsides. And so I think when you look at the the full set of stories, part of it is about supplementing a lack of archival. Also, you have no idea when you're pitching the show if you're going to get the people who own that archival to let you use it. Like there's a lot of WWE archival here because one of the things that the McMahons have done is bought, is bought up a lot of other territories and a lot of other archives, video archives of old wrestling so that they have all of it, which is like a wild maneuver. Um, but the Just cur- question, yeah, quick. Yes. have they memory hauled? some stuff too? Like, I mean, not just removed it from the website, but is their footage now from like the really rough old days of wrestling that like they don't even release for like documentary I, purposes? My guess is, my guess is yes, but I don't know. I don't want to yeah. make a, a firm statement on that. Yeah, I was just um, curious about that. I, I would, I mean, I can think of some things that you probably cannot go look at on their website, like in ring deaths. Um, I don't think yeah. that you can go watch some of that stuff that happened on video. Um, so <laughs> that seems fine, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm good with that. Actually, um, God, fuck wrestling. Yeah, um, but for for a documentary, though, at the same time, like yes. if you're telling yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, the yeah. unvarnished story, no, there's there's a, there's a justifiable there's a context where like yes. yeah. But I'm glad that it's not just like click here to see Owen Hart die in the ring. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, please. So the the but the other point of it, part of I think what the the style does and. I'm actually drawing more on the Macho Man episode here, or I think the Brett episode does this too, actually, the Brett and Shawn Michaels Montreal Screwjob, is it wants to communicate the feeling of grandeur Mm. that being bought in would actually produce. Seeing Bret Hart in the pink and the black with the lights behind him, looks he looks like a fucking superhero. He has that posture. They shoot him in that way, in a way that is like... That brings the emotional content of what it would was what it was like watching that happen live into an audience that is cynical and is not bought in and understands the whole thing is a work and et cetera, et cetera. I will say, and this is part of why I feel weird about some of it, is I think it works for me in Montreal Screwjob. I think that's a great story because of how it blurs reality and fiction, because of how it ends up being the the jumping off point of what modern pro wrestling is altogether. But the story that I didn't have us watch, the Macho Man and Miss Elizabeth one, is frustrating to me because of how pedestrian and normal it the tragedy is, which is not to say I don't want those stories told because I think they're true and important to understand the complexity of the people involved. But this is a story about a bad relationship, about a jealous boyfriend – a jealous husband, a paranoid husband who leads his wife to leave him, and then a culture of intense drug use and abuse and of uh, an unfortunate overdose. 
And that is a very, that is not, I wanted to take over a rival territory and got stabbed in the locker room. Um, that is a story that, that one, it's hard to know if there is a mission around questions of domestic violence or not. Um, because that's like not a factor, no matter how often they describe Randy as being like obsessive and paranoid and controlling that mm-hmm. no one is ever like, Hey, people are like, Oh yeah, it's, he was just, he was really paranoid and controlling, but he loved her so much. And it's a lot of that sort of like fond m- memorializing of the good old days when mm-hmm. they were together and happy. Um, and there's a lot of like, there's a lot of people who went through this trauma as friends of theirs trying to make sense of it. And so I want to give them the space to uh, to relate to their own experiences. And I'm not here to be like, you know, you're this person or this person's relationship was invalid, blah, 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 like at all. But there is something about the private nature of what their tragedy was that does not – that did not work for me with this sort of larger-than-life uh, hyper stylized framing or it's not that it didn't work it's that it revealed the tensions already already extant in this style of filmmaking mm-hmm. that is a that is the same sort of thing with a lot of true crime right where it's like ugh, how am i boiling down this person's tragic life and also who gets to talk right because like miss so miss elizabeth dies of a drug overdose and her family isn't in this story you know what i mean like some mm-hmm. of her friends are Randy is dead also from from a, a car a heart attack and a car accident sadly um and his and his friends are there talking you know other wrestlers are there talking uh, Hulk Hogan's ex-wife is there talking has a, a great throwaway line with a photo of both of them it's like ah oh, this is when we still loved each other mm-hmm. um but the but like it's all these people around the or- the orbit but not anyone it never feels as tight as Tony Atlas does to the the death of Bruiser Brody or to his or Bruiser Brody's family. Like it's so important that Bruiser Brody's family is speaking in that episode. Yeah. It's so important that Bret Hart is speaking in his episode. And it's not just the people around him. Um and that's access. That's people don't want to talk about stuff. I get that. It's hard to do it. But it was one of those things where I felt the limits of this stylization. Um and and it's it was it's weird. It's a weird thing to be like, let me devour the, these tragedies for fun. Mm. You know? Yeah. I wonder if, you know, I haven't seen that episode that you're talking about, um, but I wonder if, you know, it's still come out of this world. And in that sense, like, I think one of the most important parts of the stylization is what you said earlier is that is evoking sort of this the stage yeah, and evoking like the 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 feeling of being or like what it would be to be bought in it definitely does that like seeing their their like macho man randy savage stand in with miss elizabeth up on his shoulder is like it's so fucking cool right but like but that but yeah i think the the there's a limit to what you depict in that way because in like in the uh brody bruiser brody bruiser brody episode all of what happened was still in such close proximity to the ring, like yeah. literally, like physically, it was localized, like so close to the ring that it still feels like a part of that ecosystem. Yeah. And to 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 have dramatizations of life at home 
is it's it's a little bit too far removed, mm-hmm. I think, and doesn't do justice to like I think it I can see where you're coming from in in not doing justice to sort of like the tragedy that happened there. I think there's a lot to dig into with the um blurring of reality and show in in this series. Uh specifically and I, and I want to dig into that a little bit more with Montreal Screwjob. Uh but it's a meaty topic, so I think we should take a quick break here and sure. then uh dig back into into wrestling. Sounds good. I like to wrestle. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we're back. Uh... So I think one of the other threads running through this is that one of the features of modern wrestling, at least, is that everyone knows it's the show. Like being part of an informed wrestling fan at this point means using a lot of the uh, lingo of wrestling, right? Uh, kayfabe, uh, works, works, angles. Shoes, angles, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, all that, all that stuff. And this is a really marked change from what wrestling was when I was growing up where like the kids I knew who were into wrestling uncritically acted as if that shit was real. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was really off putting at the time because it's like you, you would have wrestling fans like up in your face telling you about like how awesome wrestling was and like what badasses these dudes were. And like, Bret Hart was one of those dudes where mm-hmm. Bret Hart, you know, you'd hear like that name penetrated. People would be talking about like, do you see what Bret Hart did with my, and you know, I would look at that stuff. And I was like, dude, this is like, this is acting. This ain't, this ain't real. And of course it wasn't. But what was interesting is how much of the fandom, it was important to either be bought in or act as if you were fully bought in. And I think the Montreal screw job is really interesting because it sort of does seem to mark this turning point where prior to this, a lot of the culture is like, Hey, don't, don't, you know, don't tell the, uh, don't tell the rubes like what yeah. the what the show actually is, how the it really marks, works. That please. like that's thank you. What's yeah, the marks the rubes. The, What's the, the punters? Rubes? Yeah, uh-huh. What's the punters. <laughs> uh, the the God. What, what's another normies? one? Normies. The normies. The yeah, well, you need to watch more movies about con men. I think con men and <laughs> carnivals, and you should watch Carnival yeah. actually. Carnival. Uh, be good rewatch of Carnival. Be good rewatch of Carnival. Vice. Let us do it. Uh, and then and then the final episode, that's going through the story Bible for the yep, rest of the 100%. series. Yep, anyway. 100%. Write that comic, Danoff, please. Um. But, uh, yeah, so what was interesting to me about that episode, but it also comes up with the Bruiser Brody thing, is this notion that for a long time, wrestling culture was about keeping the secrets of the show in the locker room, behind right. the scenes, and do not put that shit out in public. Do not... Uh, break the fourth wall. And now modern wrestling that certainly is flowing from some of these key moments in the nineties is very much about like playing with that notion of like the porousness of the fourth wall. Uh, and 
what's really fascinating to me is this generational divide where there's a lot of old wrestling dudes who really do believe or act like they believe in like the sanct the sanctified brotherhood of wrestlers and we really get maybe more of a larger dose than I can really stand in the oh, Montreal screw job episode uh like can we, can we talk about Jim Cornette for a second please please <laughs> Should Just we set, one wait, of really the. Quick, should we set up what this story is in in twenty seconds so people know what the fuck? We're oh, talking I can about? do it. And then to have what Jim Cornette's part is, Rob, you can pick it up. So Natalie, what yeah. is the Montreal uh, Screw Job? Brett Hart. Brett the Hitman Hart. Brett the best Hitman. Best there is, best there was, best there ever will be. Brett the Hitman Hart got uh, signed a m- very big contract with WWEF. With oh. WWF. Yeah. And uh, then Vince, WWE, which one's first? WWF. When did that switch over happen? Okay. Uh, Vince McMahon. Stop it. (laughs) Was like, oh, we can't actually afford to pay you that anymore. So he was like, well, fuck, I guess I got to go to WCW, which was the competitor at the time. And then his biggest nemesis was Shawn Michaels, um, who was like a a baby face, right? Yeah, they were both kind of baby faces. Yeah, but he was more baby face. He He was was like like a pretty boy. Yeah, he was very pretty boy. And then he almost showed you his dick. Yeah, he did. I know. I saw that in the ring. What? Yes. In the ring, too. The ring. I was thinking of the Playgirl. Oh, not even that. Spread. But yeah. no, yeah, in the ring. That was a lot. Um, okay, anyway. So basically, they were like, all right, well, we're going to have you have the belt or whatever. So you got to let it go on the way out. That's the code. You're going to forfeit it to Shawn Michaels. And there were a lot of differences in opinion on how <laughs> this would go down. Yes. Um, from all sides. Including from Jim Cornette. Including from Jim Cornette, who was the Purdue. I don't know. He was in the creative team. He was, yeah, he was in the creative team. There was a guy, another Vince. Vince Russo. Vince Russo, who, holy shit. We'll get into it. Yeah, we'll get get into into it. it. He was the writer. Um, Then you have Vince McMahon, who's like, I don't know, the evil head. Um, And uh, Shawn Michaels and Brett. Heart. Yeah, that's those are, and then one another WWE or F. the ref is Ex- there. The also. ref, oh, love him. And Eric Bischoff, um, the WCW like creatively that guy, and then one more uh, WWF. Exec yeah, that dude's who, in a few of those episodes. I forget his name. He was a big deal. Oh, he was like the CEO at the time. I think actually was he. Fuck, but I he forget. was not involved really in this. No, he was unaware. Anyway, and they screw him. They, and, they, and basically, okay, so what they decide to do, what happens WWF. <laughs> what happens is uh, they're in the fight, and then Shawn Michaels uses Bret Hart's signature move on him, the cornball. What is it? That's it, the cornball. <laughs> it's called the cornball. <laughs> The well, sharpshooter. The sharpshooter. The sharpshooter. I thought it was like the screwball, but I was like, it's something different than that. So it's it the cornball. It was different. Okay, the sharpshooter. But <laughs> mid <laughs> mid fight mm-hmm. or mid mid move, Sean does the screw uh the sharpshooter on Brett Hart and Brett is like, you did it wrong, you fucking idiot. And he's like fixing his feats for him to do it right. Uh-huh. And he's looking out into the crowd and he sees Vince McMahon. And Vince McMahon's like, rang the bell, rang the bell. And Bret Hart is like, no fucking way. I'm not letting this go down like this. And he grabs his, the Shawn Michaels' ankle and he pulls him and he pins him. 
and then the bell rings and it's like just all chaos breaks mm-hmm. and he's smashing shit. He spits on Vince McMahon, which was just intense. And then and then he leaves to go to the WCW and have like kind of a disappointing run there. That is the Montreal screw job. So my only my only thing good at the twenty top, seconds. Yeah, good twenty seconds. My only one at the top is it was actually a pretty small contract. It was like one point two million dollars for twenty years. Over twenty years. Oh I no, that, was that, that had to have been annual. Um, no, he either dude. had to be no, dude. He no, took a bad, didn't he take that? Was the whole thing was like he took no a, a bad million deal. dollars over twenty years is like no, he wouldn't have taken that. What did he then? Because the WCW it was a million dollars. It was one point two for twenty years. Oh, okay. like one point two. Like yeah, yeah. Okay, so, that's yeah. what I thought. But because they're bullshit contracts, none of that money is guaranteed, as we'd say in the NFL. Right, I worry. He immediately uh, walked it back. Yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, again, like man, these guys need a fucking union. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I'm sorry if you can't pay my contract. That is an unfortunate <laughs> problem for you, not necessarily mine. Also, Bret Hart comes from a big wrestling family. That is true. Um, kind of a weird one. Yeah, yeah. they had a fucking yeah. bear. I don't. Want, we don't have time to get into the bear. Yeah. Okay, Rob. So Jim the point Cornette. is, Jim Cornette is. His whole, like, first of all, it just seems like one of the oiliest, like, old school snake oil salesman type dudes, uh, you know, in in the story uh, seems very representative of what the old days of wrestling may have been like. And certainly that's how he presents himself, right? He's the keeper of, like, the sacred knowledge. And he's just so full of shit. He is so thirsty to take credit oh, yeah. for the Montreal Screwjob and, like, claim ownership of this major, uh, like – trajectory altering event in the history of wrestling. Um, but that like to the point where he claims the entire thing was his idea. And basically his argument for that is that he discovered the lost secret of dramatic irony <laughs> by scouring the archives of wrestling that he keeps in his fucking house and discovered that once many years ago, also in Canada, a wrestler famously used another wrestler's move against him when the match was fixed to go a different way. And therefore, it was a double cross. And my God, that was how we were going to solve the problem of Brett the Hitman Hart. I didn't use his get own that. move against him because it's bullshit. I didn't get did how get? a double cross. Okay, so double cross yeah. is somebody crosses you and you cross them back. Uh huh. That's what Brett did. He but that's got not, he got the screwball or the uh-huh, the sharpshooter, sharp uh-huh. and then he grabbed the ankle. Isn't that a double no. cross? No, 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 the double no. The double cross. So, that ankle grab is not. That ankle grab was like, ah, oh, fuck. Let me grab something to show that this is. I'm not tapping out. Basically, uh, um, the double cross. It's not a double cross. It's not. A, I mean, the double no. cross. It's just a cross. He's just a betrayal. The double cross is the ref, maybe. Right. The double cross is the but, ref. That makes sense. But it wasn't using his own move against him. It was, yeah. and that's the thing. So Jim Cornette's story is like Red Hart's obviously never betrayed bullshit. Anyone. I just want everyone to understand. <laughs> Yeah, so Cornette's story is obviously bullshit, but he's, like, so gleeful about, like, having authored this moment. And then also is really somehow annoyed that people were breaking the fourth wall in this period. Yeah. That, like, it was somehow a bad thing for the history of wrestling that the um, the, the sort of the the workings of the show were, were given away. And clearly... It is also the only reason why we care about who he is and what he did in his career is because, like, we know this stuff. Uh, but, yeah, he just he just seems really uh, 
snaky, I he think. Is cut it, from a very particular cloth of wrestling promoter of this era. He is a, like a slime ball. They all are, though. Vince Russo's also a fucking schizoid. Like, a hundred percent. I don't trust that motherfucker. They're both like, I thought of the double cross. Yeah. Totally. No, but Vince Russo just seems like the sort of dude who'd like steal your treatment for a pilot episode of a TV series and like submit <laughs> it on his own. Like, I mean, that's that's how he seems. Uh, whereas this Cornette is is something else. But it it was just really interesting to me this notion that, um, and it remains one of the reasons that like there's conspiracy theories about whether the Montreal screw job was was maybe a story within a story. Uh, but it's just interesting to me at this moment where. Um, the Montreal screw job apparently goes so poorly and leaves such a bad taste in Bret Hart's mouth that he basically makes everything public. Here's what went down here. And basically is describing how angles are, are prepared, uh, how storylines unfold. And in the process of explaining why he feels wronged, he is unpacking for everybody how the WWF or E, whatever it was at the time, actually functions. And that also basically paves the way for Vince McMahon turning into the character we now know and love to hate today, which is he embraces the role as, yeah, yeah, actually, I do run this. Uh, this is my – I'm the puppet master and, and the boss man here. Uh, and again, it's a classic example of what Ian talked about in his piece that we talked about the other week, yeah. which is everything that – every bad thing that happens to the promotion gets folded into the show. And Vince McMahon just kind of rolls with this and, uh, you know, ends up taking it over. But it was, it was just fast. He's a hit a millionaire. You may as well turn that into the storyline, mm. you know? But it's fascinating to me that, like, on the other side of this, the vantage of the present, clearly now everyone knows roughly how wrestling works, how stories unfold. At the time in the 90s, it's this, it's this very, uh, that is that knowledge is that the duel between WCW and WWE is starting to break down the illusion because you're having guys literally just exit storylines and go start up somewhere else and start wrestling in a different promotion. But then you project back further, and like one of the things the Bruiser Brody episode hinges on is that literally at the scene of this crime, police apparently are not sure that this is not yeah. a work. Yeah, like that. The, like the literally, best thing about police. That- is it yeah. goes both ways in the end, right? Because yeah. they show up and they go, there's blood on the ground, but there's all, it's Bruiser Brody. This motherfucker always mm. draws blood. This is his act. This is how he gets paid. I don't know that this is real. And then later when it is a, when it's is it in the actual court case, or no, it's not. It's actually the, the defense uh, of of the 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 lead suspect whose name I keep forgetting. I keep remember that his wrestling Gonzalez? name is Invader Jose. One. Yeah, Jose Gonzalez. Uh, was um, hey, I was scared of him. He, I was really scared of him. This is self defense. This is real. All and and one of the things that the documentary says is basically is like, and for the people who did not understand the degree to which this was a work, to the degree to which this was scripted, um, that was effective because mm-hmm. they thought this was real. And it's like you have the same basic demographic of people. It's blurry. It isn't decided. Like that's the key here. It's like it's not. It's fake. It's not. It's real. It's that even then, it's hard to even for the people who are outside of it. It's hard to fully know. In some moments, they want to believe it's fake, and other moments, they're like, "Well, no, I'd be scared of this motherfucker too. <laughs> He's Bruiser Brody. He's mm-hmm. never lost a match. He fights into the crowd, etc." 
Um, and that is super interesting. Like that is like a, a thing that is a difficult thing to unpack or it's a good thing to, to, to see. It's an interesting thing to see because what it reveals is that there's always been that ambiguity in the audience, even though it, the particular machinations and mechanisms only become clear as Bret Hart goes public. And also as the world becomes – as the, the whole industry becomes more centralized. Right. As everything becomes more WWE, because then that model becomes the the model as you know, there was a time when like there were 50 territories in North America and maybe a bunch of them were part of the NWA, one giant territory, but they're still run slightly differently from area to area. Also, by the way, the NWA or what's left of it, of the, the National Wrestling Alliance, I think it's called the National Wrestling Alliance, the National Wrestling Association. Alliance uh, is owned by uh, Billy Corrigan from the Smashing Pumpkins. Awesome. Yeah. That's, Billy, listen, that's... Billy Corrigan loves wrestling and he was going to carry the flag of the old territory system forward into the future. Such a product of his times. Uh-huh. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it ends up being a – Really fascinating series that is telling stories that certainly I didn't know about wrestling, but also I think is really doing a good job of tying these sort of behind the scenes drama to things that are inherent to the form itself in some ways, uh, explaining how like wrestling is uniquely messy in how its performers, how its writers bring its performances into reality. And what what bits and pieces of fiction and reality cross from reality into the ring and what crosses out from the ring into reality. I think it makes it a really compelling, compelling show. Yep. Uh, it's on Wednesdays, I think, on Viceland. And I think at least a few of these episodes are free to watch online. Um, so give it a search. Dark Side of the Ring. In the Ring? Dark Side of the Ring. Uh, so... The other thing I just wanted to talk about really quickly here this week uh, is this review by uh, Thomas Meany of George Packer's new biography of Richard Holbrook. Uh, I don't want to talk. I want to talk about this. We're going. We're not. This is. I want to talk about this. <laughs> uh, so if you don't know, Richard Holbrook is one of the major like professional diplomats of the Democratic Party. Uh, in the latter half of the 20th century, uh, early, early part of this century. And there's, there's a few things about, there's a few things about Dick Holbrook, uh, that are sort of well known. Uh, just a colossal asshole, uh, by, by all accounts, a really, uh, challenging person to work with. People will tell you he's brilliant, but he was the first to tell you he's brilliant. Uh, and always like, you know, things got done. His reputation was things would get done around him, but also that uh, he would sow a lot of bad blood in, in the process. Uh, he first came to my attention when I read uh, one of David Halberstam's books, uh, War in a Time of Peace, mm. which covers uh, the Clinton foreign policy, particularly around the Balkans. Uh, and Holbrook emer emerges as a ma major figure there. But this biography is this attempt by George Packer to sort of tell this, this broader story about someone he regards as uh, a uniquely great American statesman hmm. and sort of a model for a type of American uh, diplomacy 
and foreign policy that has kind of been marginalized and is in danger of being lost. And this review is very critical of this because the position of the reviewer is Holbrook also maybe typifies a lot of things that have been bad about American foreign policy, particularly on the left and uh, ways it can be hapless. So I was just interested. I thought this was an interesting way to sort of start talking a little bit about the history of quote unquote, like liberal democratic foreign mm-hmm. policy in the U S uh, and how that sort of differentiates from any kind of leftist uh, foreign policy. I think it's super important to immediately, I think one of the reasons it's important to have this conversation is going into primary season. A lot of the candidates, even those I like have shit foreign policy um, and, or don't or don't. That's also. Yeah, absolutely. That was like one of, you know, like I remember, you know, uh, back, thinking back to 2016, like that, like, Bernie Sanders explicitly would just go, ah, just mm-hmm. foreign policy. What? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I think, and I think you know, because like it's a lot stickier because there isn't an established right. This was like when we were talking about uh, you weren't on this episode, Austin, but where I was talking my frustrations with some podcasts like Citation yeah, Needed yeah. and others, where it's like, less let's break down like why the system is bad and broken and hypocritical. But also, cool. This is this is all worth it. And and as someone that is a critic and doesn't think you need to offer solutions in order to be critical of things, like I am, I am not claiming that everything needs to do this. But at the same time, you want those solutions somewhere. To, I want to. Th- I want to. Th- what is the new? What is because like uh, where we have come so far, even just a couple of years as sort of a, a larger sort of like left tent on economics and and social justice. Um, it none of that has happened in terms of foreign policy because I think currently we lack a framework and even to think we know what hasn't worked. Boy, we don't like, we shouldn't do intervention and war is bad, but also I'm, I'm struggling with, okay, well then what are the alternative options as we think about how you do approach the United States and its influence and what it can or can't do. And so that this was a good piece, Rob, to like start figuring out what, what that is, um, or at least to start thinking about it. The, the thing Austin, I- you sounded like, Sorry. No, Natalie. Yeah, sorry, Natalie, I, I, go I busted ahead. in there. No, no, no you didn't you bust in. You didn't at all. Natalie, go ahead. Um, I, I was just going to say the thing that I really loved about reading this piece was the analysis of Packer himself um, and the way that he's telling the story and like yeah. what he's choosing to highlight and how he's framing things because I think it's it can be a trap to read uh, a biography and think of it as just a telling of like without thinking of the voice that's telling it. Um, It's not often that I'm also just like not super like familiar with biography writers and things like that. Um, But um, to consider who's telling the story, what are they choosing to highlight, how are they framing it, and mm-hmm. everything like that is so, so important. Um, and especially thinking of, like, the politics of the of the writer themselves and, and how that might influence the way that they tell the story was super eye-opening to me in this review. Right, which I think gets back to the thing that I, that I was saying before, which I, I actually – it adds another layer of nuance to it, which is – the thing that I like about this going into primary season, why I think it's important to start having these conversations around foreign policy, is what Packer does. And so Packer is a liberal, you know, left leaning. Uh, uh, you know, spent time in the DSA of the of the eighties uh, and nineties. Um, you know, was was 
part of a young, as a writer, was part of a, a group of people who moved from the left towards the center left in the Clinton years, um, is in both in both Holbrook's case as a diplomat and in Packer's case as a biographer, the ease of defaulting to one action as like necessary and good and two, to the Bernie Sanders hand-waving eh, foreign policy will figure it out. The sort of like – the refusal to come to the table and engage with that part of this conversation and instead go to gut and instead go to uh, lowering it as a priority, et cetera, are – is a is a risk that we all have during primary season, um, and part of the I think part of the reason around that is that to have the the bigger foreign policy conversation is to step out onto a ledge a little bit, is to get into a really risky position, um, because the larger foreign policy conversation is one in which one you can end up advocating for things like not stepping in in the case of terrible uh, humanitarian crisis in which you can easily, because of domestic policy, end up advocating for the reduction of you know, American military might in such a way that such intervention is just off the table altogether. And those large-scale left programs are things that will fundamentally shift, if executed, fundamentally shift the global power balance in a way that I'm happy with, but that is contrary to what Packer falls into here, which is some very simple status quo default positions on what heroism and what nobility and what goodness look like. And those things look like standing up when you see something wrong mm. so that you can address it because that's your job, because you're a citizen of the world. And the reason I think this conversation is so tough is because these are those sorts of deep-seated ideological expectations and norms that are so deep-seated that we don't think they're ideological. When you see someone in trouble, it is good to help them. Yeah. This is ideological. It is not simply moral. It is a thing that we have been taught and that we have internalized through a set of, of teachings, both didactic and passive, through our superheroes as much as our teachers. And it is difficult to stop and say, am I the right person to do this? Is there a way in which my stepping into a situation will do more harm long term? Uh, should I carry instead the guilt of having caused these situations to begin with and not try to further that pain? To, and there's a, there's a clear metaphor here, which is like you see someone laying on the ground. What do you do? And the thing that we have done as Americans is go pick them up. Uh, and bring them to to us, um, and it's like well, okay, but wait, maybe they're maybe they were injured in such a way that moving them will hurt them more. Mm -hmm. Maybe you shouldn't be doing that because the way that you're going to pick them up and bring them to, to help is only really tied to like lining your pockets more. Um, and so those conversations, I think, are really hard and are and like I don't think that I'm I'm like and that's my easy answer for foreign policy: stay out of everything. But I do think that this conversation or this piece is so good because it. It so clearly tells you stop fucking defaulting to a position that just feels good because that is how you end up writing a biography like this where you you end up lionizing someone instead of being holistic in your in your evaluation. There's a really good line here uh, from 
fr- from Meany, uh, where he's talking about, so why do we have this biography? Like, what is what are the big takeaways meant to be? And his, his sort of conclusion here at the end is, uh, the reason seems to be that deep in Holbrook is something that appeals to Packer, a commitment to humanitarianism that claims to transcend ideology and that focuses on intentions instead of outcomes. Yes. And I think this is also one of the things that really begins to derail uh, a lot of one of the reasons that like it is really difficult for any sort of uh, any sort of president to maintain a more leftist foreign policy is that a lot of it does involve being acting with way more humility and understanding of like the limitations of not just American power, but also like unintended consequences, the way that power has been used historically, uh, how other your intentions will be misread, misinterpreted, or maybe actually very correctly read and understood by others who know how often uh, your true intentions are masked in uh, you know ideological platitudes, and that becomes a very difficult thing to sustain when you have. A political system, uh, a sort of news environment that does tend to say repeatedly, we've identified something. It is a problem. What are you going to do about it? And it is very hard to say in those moments, actually, I question whether we can do anything about it, whether we should do anything about it, or even that it's necessarily our problem <laughs> that we that that we should be stepping in and dictating a solution to. That is a that is a tough thing to present as particularly when we have like there's a lot of stereotypes about what a president should do uh and it does tend to be active not passive but i mean you just remember um you know it's not like obama has a particularly good record on this stuff but even just small things like the whole uh leading from behind phrasing mm-hmm. um in which like early in his presidency he's like well, what if like there was a coalition and we just weren't necessarily the first ones out of the gate and then that becomes a way of completely dismantling and like that's that's exactly what you're speaking to rob right is that like oh the united states is uniquely suited to be the world's cop we need to be the ones to go do this and the admission that maybe we aren't the right ones or even should be considered to be the right ones is an is itself then weaponized to say well you're saying you the united states is not great that the united states can't lead and you start to see politically why these far left policies or even potential for like a far left reinterpretation of foreign policy falls apart due to political pragmatism over and over again. Um, Because I mean, this is basically what happened to Democrats on the quote unquote war on crime, right? It's like, well, reforming the system opens up a door in which politically you can be hit with the notion that, well, you just want more violence. And that's how the, the right has continually like forced the left into, which wasn't even really the left, but just forced into continually more and more right-leaning positions because the alternative is then, well, then you just don't care. Actually, like you, you're piercing the the underlying foundational ideology of the United States uh, at its core, and that ends up leading to a lot of the left seeding on these issues. I think the other half of this that I think really works for me is, or I think, and this is this is like part of that that same thing is that like the. One of the reasons that um, Packer, I think, ends up writing in favor of this is that 
he's looking for someone, he's looking for a vision of what foreign policy can look like that will avoid that sort of criticism that still has at its heart something that maintains America's you know uh, uh, military power, but that finds a way to like, hey, look, I'm strong on terrorism. I'm strong on, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm willing to fight just wars. I'm willing to be involved in an international community of peacekeeping. "Quote unquote peacekeeping," um, but in doing so, but actually, they're not in doing so. But the cause of that is this moment where he turns from the left. Packer, as a writer about you know about politics, in which he says, "Can't beat them, join them," and and kind of slides into the third way, the Clinton camp, and that to me is like the deep poison that we have to combat. This like feeling of like, well, there's no other, there is no other world possible. Let's do the best we can in this one. And what we need is someone to do the sort of work that is imagining sorts of foreign policy solutions that are as outrageous uh, to our first blush uh, as the the far right's proposals are that are like so clearly ridiculous. I want those from the left that are like, okay, well, slow down. Wait a second. Okay, wait, what's your argument? Let me hear it actually. Let me start hearing and thinking about what that is because it will shake things up that much. And what's kind of ironic is the thing that made Holbrook so successful as a diplomat is that he was willing to like just make some shit happen that was not necessarily in line with what his superiors may have wanted now or then. And in fact, maybe one of the great costs or one of the great morals of the Holbrook story is be careful with who you make into a into a diplomat, into a superstar diplomat, because he will be one whether you assign him to be one or not. There's that great moment <laughs> where he like shows up to Beijing and they treat him like an official statesman, even though he's not in any official capacity anymore. Um, yeah. Th- there's um – there's a couple things. One, there's this through line about Packer is that he doesn't really leave the DSA for any real reasons no. of conviction. It no. is that he wants to be part of the conversation that is access to power. Mm-hmm. That is, he's like, well, shit. Like, we didn't, we never got anywhere near the levers of power. Like, this, this version of the left has been marginalized. It's all like the Clintonians who have the power of the centrists. So I'm going to go there and be where the action is. It's very Hamilton, right? Yeah. It's, it doesn't matter like who you are, what you believe in. It's just go where, go, go where the action is. Like, you know, be, be part of it. What are you part of? Doesn't matter. You're part of it. Be in the room where it happens. Like, this is why this shit ends up being like so celebrated because, and I understand the appeal of it, but at the same time, these are also now people who are trying to then say, Ah, uh, but I'm experienced. You better bring me back into the fold. We might be moving left, but like you, you got to let people like me stay relevant in the conversation. Yes, I was wrong on critical questions for the last 15, 20 years. Uh, but you have to understand, I wanted to advance my career in prospects mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, and I think that's the, the thing to guard against. The, the other part of this that I find really interesting, though, is this notion that Holbrook's viewed as this master statesman because he's a very hyperactive one uh, in these, like dealing with these crises. He's very much in the, uh, you know, almost the Warren Zevon, the envoy model of diplomat, right? We're just like flying into crisis zone after crisis zone and just letting the world know, like, here's what Uncle Sam uh, Mm -hmm. says is going to happen. And just like cutting deals, uh, you know, almost 
doesn't matter if the deal is a good one. Like Bosnia famously, you know, the argument here is that by the time we brokered a peace in Bosnia, a lot of the worst war crimes and ethnic cleansing had already happened. And we basically codified them. Right, so yeah, basically the, the result was just being like that, but, but systemic that, but like yeah. all the time, make that the norm. Yeah. Uh, but then a lot of stuff happens. And uh, this is, I think probably the, the great indictment of, uh, like Clinton foreign policy and perhaps later Obama foreign policy is this notion that nobody has their eye on like the larger geopolitical questions, like literally uh, sort of like what it means to normalize trade relations with China, what a conversion of like, like the Chinese economy and Southeast Asian economies to like global capitalism and, and like connecting those markets, what that is going to mean politically, uh, economically for the environment. None of this stuff ever appeared to land really on the radar is something you should seriously like think about what new structures are you building? It's something Dick Holbrook was doing pretty much as a freelancer working for banks. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you know, that's, that's kind of, that was his gig when he was out of power was to advance this stuff, which absolutely was foreign policy. But it's all this kind of thoughtless, well, it's just expanding trade and free markets. That's not foreign policy. That's not ideology. That's just that's just the prevailing wind. And I think that's the other part of this that's really fascinating is the things we view as diplomacy and the things we don't even really regard as choices to have made, as things to even have prioritized or pay attention to. Totally. Do either of you have any confidence that this is actually going to become a meaningful part or you, Natalie, as well? I, we haven't heard from you a little bit. Like any like reasonable confidence that this is actually going to be a thing the next year? Because I don't. I think they're going to avoid from it. it like the plague. I – yeah. I don't – I'm with you. Yeah. I'm kind of the same way. Um, I – foreign policy isn't necessarily a buzzword in – on the left in like in the sort of democratic uh um uh politics in the same way that it is on on the right and that's why i feel like it it doesn't really come up in sort of these like initial um debates and conversations and like outlines of policies and stuff like that because it waits until it's like democrat versus republican and then it sort of comes through yeah um, so I'm like disappointed, but not surprised that foreign policy is one of the lesser sort of talked about things in the Democratic primaries. I can imagine. I'm starting to think think through this. So like what we won't see is, you know, Liz Warren just made her big kind of universal college uh, education pitch, right? Her free college pitch. Um and that was so dramatic that it captured headlines all day and people were talking about policy and we're debating it. Um, I don't think we'll see anything as fully featured as that. But what I do uh, – the places where I do think it will happen. So like foreign policy, no. Palestine, there will be some yeah, debate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Israel's going to be a Huge. big thing. Uh, can I imagine a candidate saying on a stage this year, it is time to end the forever war? Yes. 
Will there be a, a package that explains what that platform is or how to pull out of the... It's also such a hyper... I guess it's kind of also kind of a hypothetical. A hundred percent. Which is part... Like, the, the, I guess, like, the, the ways in which the primary intersects with that is do outside events force them into a corner in which they are then have to make what would you do or do differently in that scenario? And I guess on some, like, larger level isn't the, the the natural focus of the primary on like domestic economic concerns itself yes a like larger reflection of well actually part of our foreign policy is saying we're fucking up at home like we need to you know step back from that to some degree because we're not helping there and we're not helping here so in some sense that is like a larger conception of America's place in the world itself. I also think, like, even once leftists take power, there is this undeniable – like, Obama was wrong about so many things. He was not wrong about the idea of there being a blob in foreign policy, what he described as the blob being this, like, interventionist impulse that just keeps expanding military operations and commitments uh, anywhere, everywhere with open-ended missions, no no states you're trying to achieve, just be there, just to be there. Um, Obama could speak – very well to that because that was in many ways one of his signal crimes as president, yeah. right? Like literally, like also he was somebody who was like, hell yeah, drone warfare. Let's escalate yeah. the shit out of that. Yep. No cost of that. Uh, but the – but I think that is also driven in part by even if this comes up in the foreign – in the primary and you get a candidate who says we need to end the forever war, does that candidate, if elected president – going to be able to stomach and deal with the political damage of, for instance, a Taliban coalition government taking power in Afghanistan as American troops leave. Like literally to just say, you know what? Fuck it. Like we had to reach a settlement with the Taliban uh, and they're now effectively back in like legitimate control of Afghanistan. And that is fine. We are fine with that. That is the end state. And they're going to start doing like pursuing whatever kind of policies that, uh, the the modern Taliban would pursue are like, would that president be okay with that happening? Could they deal with what would be the equivalent of this generation's version of like the choppers leaving the embassy roof in yeah. uh, Saigon? And that that's tough. It is, it is tough to, it is tough to stand by and see things that you think are, that you generally regard as bad things happen. But I think also, it is extremely difficult in this country's political discourse to accept any limitations on power yeah. and a capacity to to acknowledge like we could not reshape this corner of the world as we idealize as, as in in our ideal vision. Especially we did not have the if we reshaping it is immediately not what our ide- our ideal vision is. This has always been the tension of the sort of like interventionist we will make them democracies thing is like. The idealized vision that is, has been at the heart of our own myth- mythologizing around our own statehood that has been in the political philosophy that is core to like the American dream of democracy is an inside out building of, of a democratic state. It is not state building. It is not an outside force coming in and like putting its people in power and making the business relationships right and you know making sure that we are in control of national natural resources all of that stuff that comes along with we will help you build voting booths is contrary to the very myths that justify that have justified 
that process that we've okayed or that we don't – maybe you and I have not okayed it, but like we ain't in the streets over it and it's happening every day. Uh, and so like that is the – that core tension, like it is impossible to stand up and say we're going to go turn the world into our dream idealized world without immediately contradicting yourself because the dream that we claim we support is one of self-determination and you cannot have self-determination and state building at the same time. Mm. You can there are, ways, are there ways to support that sort of state building, that sort of like d- d- democratization, that sort of like um, uh, uh, internal revolutionary work? Yes. I'm going to need more than like, how the end it, of a podcast like, <laughs> to figure it out. Yeah, totally. It's like, yeah, how do you how do you rethink that it isn't just falling into the same conservative traps of like, well, just feed the guns to revolutionary you groups, know, wait like, for a coup. And frankly, there are probably some ways. And like some of those ways are about stopping business relationships, making it illegal for American businesses to profit off of the state building that the that the, you know, uh, State Department does, that the military does, making it illegal right. for American private military corporations to to da, 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 making it, you know, taxing it higher. There are, there are, this is what I mean when I say I want a, a like a radical foreign policy proposal is I want someone to be like, here's how we do it. Cause like, and just fucking throw that shit at the wall. <laughs> I, it doesn't need to win. And you could do that in the context of the forever war, yeah. right? Like, like, look, like how, how are we going to pay for this shit back home? Well, you know, stop the forever war and do X, Y, Z with the stuff. You know I mean? Yes. Like there, there, you can, you can see Someone sketch it. through lines between like Get- the economic domestic policy and like a, a ratcheting down of the, the gross expansionist imperialist foreign policy that we currently and have. And it probably doesn't win this time, but like, give me the walk. No, but you, it's all the over, it's, it's all yes. Overton. Yes. It's all. And I think that's, that is, uh, if we get anything, I have like really low expectations for like meaningful foreign policy change, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or whoever, however far left they get in. I think ultimately you're going to see domestic policy take precedent and the blob or however you want to characterize it largely encapsulating that. But like if the last five years has been creating – like part of what Bernie Sanders did was give people a framework to rethink domestic economic policy those things existed before he was yeah. not the the the, <laughs> uh, the original the originator of that but he popularized a framework for people to even think about th- what the possibilities could be and what we could accomplish i would like to see distance towards as the very lowest bar what even is that for our interactions with the rest of the world so that you can start lifting both boats at the same time even if my expectations are low for change in the near term or medium term for what that foreign policy is it does we're essentially the left has essentially ceded it to the right because they haven't provided a conceptual framework to and maybe what you might find out is similar to left economic policies it's a lot more popular than you think i mean look Mm -hmm. at a lot of what again what trump did and actively lied upon but like calling out the iraq war is a bad idea like act like they're 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 um saying we should just kind of pull out and do stuff at home. They didn't do any of that shit. No. But there are is evidence that like a more far left rethinking of like foreign policy would actually be popular if people just stopping too cowardice to actually position it. I really think the thing here is like for me it's like that candidate should easily be able to blend, maybe not not easily, but should do the work to blend the sort of economic uh, domestic policy changes to 
this shift against the forever war and against intervention in general around the same criticism, which is the simple one that we all have, which is the rich get richer, that the the hyper wealthy will use whatever this is. Make it expensive to go to war. Don't make it a possible place to to make more money. Like the second that you make it expensive for Americans to go to not just not just us for rich Americans. Yeah. If you want to be part of this, like we're actually going to tax you super fucking hard. Hey, you know what? Yeah, yeah, you can be part of the state building if you want to be part of this, but you're not going to get to build like a new corporate HQ there. We're in fact going to tax uh, the ultra wealthy to fund the the military higher. If that's the way, if that's what you want to do. If you think it's so important to go around the world and intervene in things, then we should pay that cost, and that cost should not be an opportunity for for businesses to go make more money. And let me mm-hmm. tell you, I bet all of a sudden we do a lot less state building. The second it's more expensive, <laughs> the second that arms manufacturers can't make money on that shit, the second that uh, resource companies can't get through, can't use it as a loophole for domestic taxes, like the second that it doesn't become uh, a revenue generator, suddenly I suspect that even the right may start to look a little bit more dovish. Uh, and that is the way that you have to push those sorts of long-term changes in is you get to the root of it, which in this case is still about upholding a global system that is about wealth creation for the hyper and ultra rich. And it's not just about state creation. It's not just about – like to the degree that America has has per- performed and pursued policies that are about creating quote-unquote democracies, what they are really attempting to do is create marketplaces and consumers and new buying populaces that will then continue to feed into a global economy that we think is a natural good. We in fucking huge scare quotes here. Mm. Anyway, I have some thoughts on foreign policy. Yeah. And I think, and I think, to that point, like the the vision of successful foreign policy needs to not be Holbrook slapping a band aid <laughs> on a gaping wound and then plugging, like hooking a still contested piece of territory with unsettled politics into some global trade order or, yep. uh, you know, like uh, multilateral institution and being like, well, that's victory. Like nothing, nothing can be bad about a country that's part of the EU. And like, that's, that's not like, that can't be the end game. That can't be the end state. You can't like the solution can't always be, you know, as soon as we just get these people involved in a multilateral institution and normalized trade relations, you know, it's all fair ways and greens from there. Yeah. Yeah, Like, and I think for a long time that was get like, get that stuff out of the headlines, uh, you know, make, make things feel and look normal by our standards. And that was what counted for success. And I think, you know, by those, by those standards, I think Holbrook probably fares, fares very well. Are those the useful standards to apply to a successful and just foreign policy? Not so uh, much. This review makes a very good case that it is not. My last, my last point here is that I think we also have another responsibility as cultural critics, and if you're listening and you are in journalism, if you are in media, if you have a platform, um, pay attention to where intervention is happening. 
to the ways in which it's being justified and to the many places where that same justification would apply and yet intervention doesn't happen. One of the big things that this piece notes uh, is that in the in the 90s during uh, during Holbrook's uh, time, not just Holbrook's time, right? Like the kind of American uh, interest uh, uh, in 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 um, why am I blanking? Uh, in in Sarajevo, in kind of Eastern Europe, as the Bosnian War was happening, like where were we not intervening? Rwanda, Sri Lanka, Algeria. There are wars happening all the time. There are humanitarian crises happening all over the world. Which ones are we paying attention to? What are the justifications that are being said for the ones that we're paying attention to? And we talk about hidden curricula a lot on this podcast, the, the kind of unspoken uh, knowledge, the, the collection of, of things. But there's also a sort of hidden justification. Uh, and look at the difference between two scenarios. Look at what's happening in Bosnia in the 90s and then also what's, what's happening in Rwanda and look at not only the American political and military uh, reaction to those things – but look at the media infrastructure response. Look at what the corporate response is. Look at what the the response is from your from your uh, religious institutions. Where is attention being paid? What are the politics of attention at work? And if you're in a position to like call attention to that mismatch, call attention to it. Make sure that your front page is not only whatever the the like current the the you know t- today's special is. Actually, focus on what that broad picture is. And when someone in a, an official capacity says, "Here is why we are pursuing policy with foreign nation," see what other foreign nations line up to that same uh, excuse or same reason, and see if it's applied there too. And if not, there is some other reason. There is the invisible reason there somewhere. Push on those people, dig into those people, ask those questions, ask your representatives. You don't need to have a platform to call up your rep who says like, well, this is why I support this particular intervention. And then you can say, all right, well, why don't you why don't you support it here? Why don't you support it here? What is the thing that separates this scenario from these other scenarios? And then also quote them and record that conversation so that we can hear it. <laughs> That's it. I'm All right. Done. Well, we will continue to break the kayfabe of American foreign <laughs> policy here at Waypoint on Waypoints for the for the coming wow, weeks. Wow, bravo. Uh, our thanks to Two Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. Uh, I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Patrick, where can people find you? Phone call. Tom Arnold spoke with... Michael Cohen recorded oh the phone call and released it to the wa- to the Wall Street. This is what I mean, Tom Arnold. I didn't mean Patrick that. I didn't, that's not what I meant. <laughs> Tom Arnold immediately heard this podcast. He He's hacked, hacked in. into Did us. He, like, he had that show. Worry. Was that? Did that ever air? It aired. Yeah, stopped. <laughs> but apparently it didn't. <laughs> it not ex- really. Great experiment. Okay, yeah, it's still ongoing in Tom Arnold's Twitter feed, presumably. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Austin, where can, we, where can people find you? At Austin underscore Walker on Twitter. Natalie. At Natalie Watson on Twitter. You can find our producer Kato on Twitter at A underscore Kato underscore appears. Uh, That'll do it for this week's Waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break. Uh, Please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, I like to think we're a five-star podcast, but that's not for me to say. Five-star runtime. Five-star podcast, five-star runtime. Oh, fuck. Five-star podcast, five-star runtimes. Catch me in the ring, Bret Hart. You know I'm going to put that sharpshooter on you. Go leave some reviews for Be Good and Rewatch yeah, It. Yeah, actually, <laughs> continue to do, do that. that. 
Do uh, that. Yeah, you should be Uncle sure Vice. and listen to our new podcast, Be Good and Rewatch It, which is now our old and currently on Hiatus podcast, Be Good and Rewatch It. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, where this week uh, we checked out Jordan Peele's Us uh, and sort of considered whether or not I, in fact, destroyed Be Good and Rewatch It with the Jane Austen Marathon. Uh, who can say? Who can say? Uh, Worth it. Like like your reviews of our podcast, not for me to say, certainly. If you're an English uh, anyway. teacher or a television studies teacher, make your students listen to Be Good and Rewatch It. I want those numbers <laughs> to go up. Listen to Austin talk about his fanfic. Listen to it. Make your students listen to fanfic. And write it. And write it. Also, it's a good exercise and fun <laughs> to do. Uh, so we hope you and your students will join us for that and join us again next week for Waypoints. But until then... Do not give in to astonishment. Also, fanfic is an end in itself. I regret saying that it was a good exercise in a way that would instrumentalize it in any sort of way. Writing fanfic is good because you get fanfic at the end of it. Bret Hart. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Well, I, wish I see you that. out there with your self-insert OCs. <laughs> I write material that is respectful of the of the original text. Yes. God. I have an imagination. I do not just imagine myself into every story. <laughs> Brett. <laughs> I right. like Bret Hart. Bret Hart's my was my favorite re- wrestler as a kid. I really? was pro Bret Hart. Yeah. No, he seems awesome. Yeah, he like all that show is filled with that same sort of like weird alpha male toxic shit. So it can be really hard to revisit it and hear him talk about what he thinks a real man is. But as a 12 year old or whatever. Oh, yeah. I was all the way. In. Yeah. Yeah. That was me. <laughs> Rasslin. I do love that they all call it wrestling or all the old dudes all do. The old dudes all the old dudes, dudes, dudes they do. They ain't wrestling. Yeah. They wrestling. What's wrestling? It's wrestling. Okay. But you're in the South. Oh, okay. <laughs> 